Hello and welcome to our second episode, uh, It's Saving the Planet, where we're showing how innovation and technology can make a difference to the world we live in. Uh, my name's Mark Harding. I'm a senior business manager at UCLB. That's the commercialization arm of University College London. And I have with me Aidan O'Sullivan. Aidan is an associate professor in energy and AI and is at UCL's Energy Institute. Aidan is a co-founder and he's the chief technology officer of Carbon Re. Re for reduce, reuse, recycle, remove and a carbon revolution. Carbon Re is a startup focused on cement and then steel and progressing towards furnace related industries. Now, for many people, an environmentally based startup operating the cement industry, an industry with a huge carbon footprint, sounds like a contradiction. But it's not. And I hope in the next few minutes uh, we'll be able to show you about the positive impact that Carbon Re can have on our environment. But before we get too far down that path, let me let's aid aid and introduce himself and tell us a little bit about Carbon Re's uh, vision and mission for the future. Thank you very much, Mark. A uh, real pleasure to be here and chatting with you today and as somebody who's been part of that journey as well. So uh, good, good to be here. I'm Aidan O'Sullivan, uh, as you've kind of introduced already, and we founded Carbon Re maybe uh, two and a bit years ago um, during the pandemic. And the idea was to found a company that could have uh, impact at the gigaton scale on carbon emissions. So global carbon emissions are at 52 gigatons. Uh, they need to be reduced to about 37, 32 in order to kind of stay within the 1.5 degrees uh, Celsius kind of uh, projections. And what we wanted to do was to found a company that could um, have a meaningful impact at the scale required in order to uh, prevent climate change and disastrous kind of effects like that. So um it kind of led us the desire to have that scale of impact is what led us to the energy intensive uh, manufacturing sector as a traditionally recognized source of emissions that is uh, difficult to decarbonize uh, but with a lot of potential for impact if it can be um if it can be reduced so again I think there's something like 3,000 cement plants in the world, and they account for 15% of global emissions. So a very concentrated source of emissions and an area where you can make a, a big impact through small improvements. Mm, great, thanks for that. So help us understand a little bit more specifically about what Carbon Re does. Um, the cement and steel industries have been around a long time. They're kind of heavy industries and not ones we think of are changing quickly and not ones we immediately think of professors of AI and energy being involved in. So so how is Carbon Re going to make a difference and, and what are you doing? Absolutely. It's it's definitely not a traditional application of AI, but I think that's what, for me, it was such a, an interesting challenge and such a um, an area of potential impact as well in that, you know, these technologies should be used uh, for the benefit of humanity and not just to kind of uh, play in the metaverse and to do kind of, you know, big tech style things as well, but to 
do practical improvements to things that affect people's lives. So cement is probably the second most uh, used consumed product in the world after water. Um, so obviously it's a vital part of modern society. So while it might not be front and center in everybody's minds, it is very relevant to industrial growth, to the GDP and to people's you know, ability to live in modern society. So what we are focused on doing is bringing AI into that industry and using it to have a positive impact on the carbon emissions that uh, the industry emits. How we do that, um, what we noticed through some initial research by one of our co-founders, Dan Sorbel, at the Cambridge Institute for Manufacturing, was that these processes are very variable in the amount of energy they consume. Now, in order to get the chemical reactions you need in order to make these materials from the raw ingredients, the raw ingredients are typically clay and limestone. And what you do is you raise them to really, really high temperatures, sort of 1500 degrees uh, for a period of time in order to induce chemical reactions, which give you the raw material for cement. Um, and this process takes place on a really large scale in cement plants around the world, uh, in kilns that are, you know, 10 meters diameter and 60 meters long and crunch through kind of thousands of tons of material a day and also consume thousands of tons of fossil fuels. So because we need these really high temperatures, um, the only fuels that are really applicable are very energy dense fossil fuels. So while we've managed to decarbonize a lot of power generation by switching to renewables, that option isn't really available to these sectors because of this need for very energy dense fuels and high grade heat. So what we are trying to do with AI is to move this uh, industry into more of a predictive uh, mode from a reactive mode. So it's traditionally one where you, again, as you've said, we've been making cement for a very long time. We have cement plant operators, we have process engineers who manage that process in a factory. Um, but what they're doing often is reacting to changes in circumstances. Um, so again, they might see that the final product isn't of good enough quality, so they might add more fuel, um, or they might see the opposite. They might see that the uh, fuel is burning is too hot, is too much, and the conditions are too hot for what they want to experience. So what we help. Uh, try and manage is to take that into a predictive setting. So we model the process uh, using uh, AI and using kind of uh, machine learning uh, so that we can predict in advance what the effects of making different actions will be. So uh, from one operator to the next, they might make different decisions in the same conditions and that can cause unnecessary amounts of uh, energy to be consumed. So what we're trying to do is to smooth out that variation in energy consumption from day to day and really help this industry operate at the uh, best possible performance that it can manage uh, given certain conditions. So uh, again, it's a very low margin industry as well. So this is really attractive to them in terms of helping them with their fuel bills. Mm, thank you. Carbon Re's got a, a great uh, website, uh, but looking at it, there's uh, a whole sort of references to different products Delta Zero uh, and a collection of other ones. Could you tell us a little bit about those products, who would use them, roughly how they work and and, and what effect they're going to have? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, again, for anyone who wants to have um, impact at scale and to um, deliver impact globally, you have to be focused on products and delivering products out into the world that people can kind of use and that you can kind of grow in this way. So Delta Zero is our first product. Um, what it is, is essentially a uh, an online dashboard that operators log into in order to get advice and recommendations as to what they should be doing in terms of improving performance. Um, so we essentially take a live stream of data from the plant, which is quite challenging to do and requires um, a lot of IoT expertise. 
And from that, we take that to our side where we have a, lot, a host of machine learning and AI models which represent the plant in simulation and allow us to uh, make simulations of what would happen under certain conditions, which we can then use to uh, move the plant in a direction of improved energy efficiency. So it's a day-to-day -day kind of tool that operators would look at you know, over the course of the day, um, you know, would change and uh, they'll receive new recommendations as the conditions change as well. Um, but it is kind of with a view to a human in the loop solution. So working with the operator as a kind of decision support tool, as a kind of an AI add-on to what they're doing, a bit like a Siri for a cement room operator. So giving them uh, advice that helps them do their job better and use the power of AI you know, to benefit them directly. So, so if I understand you correctly, what you're describing is a win-win situation, a win where the cement manufacturer has to use less raw materials to burn to create the heat and you win because they save money and the planet also wins because less co2 is produced okay that sounds great so carbon re's only been around a little while what sort of impact is it having and can we kind of describe that in a, a number that we can understand because giga mega kilos of tons, they get quite confusing and they don't really know what they mean to me as an individual. Absolutely, yeah. I think it can get uh, it can get a bit overwhelming when we talk about the scale of things. So um, for kind of a frame of reference, I would say one cement plant puts out uh, enough as much carbon emissions as um, you know one million cars per year or 10% of all the cars in, in London, as an example. So again, if we're trying to have impact at scale, if we want to reduce carbon emissions um, you know, in a plant by 10%, that can be equivalent to taking 100,000 cars off the road or turning them into electric vehicles. So um, that's the kind of level of improvement that we want to get to. We're looking to try and improve the energy efficiency at these plants by about 10%, and that seems to be what we can achieve um, based on our kind of initial trial where it was about eight to nine percent but what that manifests as is kind of over the period of time that we ran that trial we saved something like uh, 30,000 tons of carbon emissions and you know in terms of people's personal carbon footprints and uh, they tend to be around the order of kind of 1.5 tons you know per person or, or, or things like that as well depending on how you live your life so um, the scale for impact is really important because we have this grand challenge of wanting to have an impact that you know moves the needle on climate change and to do that we have to be focused on something that really has uh, impact at scale and that's what we get with these uh, cement plants which are so large and such a big source of emissions so in terms of kind of what we're able to achieve right now um, we have just closed the second round of funding so we're growing our team so we can take on more uh, customers and grow at scale as well and take out the product and um, deploy it more frequently in, in more places around the world um, that's led us to be able to run three product uh, three projects simultaneously um which again is kind of a great way for us to improve our kind of um impact on emissions so one of the challenges with um cement plants is just how uh, challenging an environment they are, you know, for people to run and you know, the challenges around that they run 24 seven, they're massive, uh, massive scale and um, you consume huge amounts of raw materials, tons and tons of, of rock and tons and tons of uh, fuel as well. So uh, what we're kind of trying to do is to have impact at that level as well. Mm, that sounds great because um, cement seems to have a huge environmental impact. Uh, I also looked at your website and could see information relating to steel and 
other furnace type industries. So, so what's Carbon Re's vision about those? And is that something you can do simply or is that a, a huge exercise to get involved there? Absolutely. So again, the, the vision very much for Carbon Re is to be a transformative company in the energy intensive materials uh, space. What we see is there are commonalities about across these processes. So as much as you need high grade uh, heat for cement manufacture, you also need very high grade heat for steel manufacture, ceramics, glass, um, all these kind of materials which you know modern world depends on they have to be brought to net zero at some stage. You know, it's not just enough to electrify transports. It's not just enough to change how we um, you know, heat our homes. We have to put net zero uh, in everything that we do. And you know, it's not enough to outsource that to a different part of the world and you know, get those materials imported. We have to be able to use technology to have those materials uh, manufactured in a sustainable way. And what we, you know, in, in terms of a big picture of what we want to achieve, we want to redesign how companies think about making those materials with carbon emissions in mind. So if you were to design a process from scratch, you know, we've been making these materials for a long time, but we've never considered the carbon emissions of the process while designing it. So there are improvements, there are efficiencies that can be made while looking to optimize with that in mind. Um, they haven't been made in the past because it hasn't been a priority. But what we're seeing now with things like the emissions trading scheme is it's becoming more and more of an issue for these um, for these industries to change around that and to gear towards this. And the, from our view of the, our kind of vision of the world, we see a lot of commonalities across these processes that we want to be able to deploy some of the learnings across as well. And ultimately, we want to get to something like a tool for drug discovery uh, for material science. So the way that you know big tech companies and uh, pharma have been investing in artificial intelligence for drug discovery, we want to do the same thing for material sciences. So we want to learn from the impact of uh, different you know impurities and different raw materials undergoing a pyroprocessing process where they're exposed to high levels of heat and to understand the chemical changes that come from that. So it's very much taking artificial intelligence into the deep science kind of realm, looking to see what can be achieved in terms of understanding those processes, which as much as we've been doing them for a long time, we haven't got the ultimate kind of understanding of in order to change it you know, in the way that we want to. And just as a kind of an example, the heat that you require to make cement changes depending on the materials you put in. So one kind of learning that the industry had over time was that if you added small amounts of alumina into the mix as well, you could lower the actual temperature that the chemical reaction happened at. So it was a bit like a catalyst in a way. So uh, what we want to be able to do is to simulate that simulate that process so well that we can use artificial intelligence to find um, you know similar kind of insights that allow us to reduce the energy intensity overall. So while we're very focused on optimizing the combustion process at the moment, having a simulation of the process overall enables huge kind of opportunities in terms of what we can achieve in terms of improvements. Mm, interesting, really good. Um, we're used to hearing about companies that have ethics, um, but Carbonari sounds slightly different in that it has much more of a vision around what it wants to achieve. And I'd like to know a little bit more about how that works in terms of the organisation, how it fits together with things like your recruitment policy or people who want to join the organisation. Have you found having such a strong mission to be a problem or, or has it helped you? I think it's helped us enormously and we've been really lucky in who we've attracted to the company. Um, really top quality AI researchers who are willing to work on a really challenging project 
rather than join you know a big tech company like Google or Facebook, they're kind of motivated to come and have impact at scale in in a problem that they they can see the logic of. So again, they can kind of see why we focused on this area and they can see the opportunity for impact. Um, it's not that any of them have a burning passion to work on cement, um, but it's more that they can see the value in what we're trying to do. And you know that helps us enormously. Um, and for what we want to do in terms of ethics, we do want to be a company that shows the world what you can do with AI to the benefit of society and the ways that this can be used to improve people's lives and to avert um, some of the major challenges that we face. And with that in mind, it's kind of it's an application of AI that you know I think hopefully should encourage people to be more receptive to AI as well. You know, I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of use cases of AI that are somewhat off-putting and you know, tend to show the negative side of what it is. But I think what we want to do very much is show that used correctly, there are a lot of things that can be solved, and it's a repositioning of some of say uh, focuses of AI research with which have traditionally been on things like natural language processing and uh, computer vision into a real problem that we have that you know, we haven't had a lot of focus on. So we're focusing on a very uh, under-researched problem, um, which has never really had much exposure to AI in the past. So again, this industry has developed um, very independently of some of the innovations that have come in machine learning and have come in data science uh, historically. And we want to kind of bring those benefits in there and start to deploy them and to be kind of the center, kind of uh, the main hub for expertise in AI in material sciences. Right. Um, I think I'm really getting to see why someone with your knowledge and experience uh, is central to Carbon RE. What, what I'd like to do now is to take you back a little bit to when you first started the business. Um, we all know businesses, they, they need money to do things. They, they can't operate without money. Um, how did you find the process of getting the investment, talking to venture capitalists to be able to really bring alive this vision? And I'm interested to find out, did the guys you speak to, spoke to about getting the sort of money that you needed to set the business up, did they understand your vision? Were they receptive to it or was it all just where's the money going? Um, great question. Yeah. Um, uh, I think raising investment is definitely uh, one of the uh, the most critical aspects of a startup. As much as you can have a vision and you know want to do things and have the technical skills to do it, if you can't convince people that you are the right team to do it and it's the right time and, and the resources are there and the demand is there, then it doesn't uh, it doesn't manifest or it doesn't kind of come to fruition. So raising investment is really important. Um, we had lots of conversations with lots of different people, and in some of those, you know, we were definitely kind of quite green to the experience and had to learn how to you know uh, go through that process, but. I think we were really lucky in terms of the investors that we ended up talking to and that we ended up attracting. And to you know, by the end of the round, we were turning investment down from other people as well, which was kind of a nice position to be in. But I think we were very lucky in terms of um, working with UCL Tech Fund um, and UCL Business that you know people were very much supportive of a company that wanted to have this kind of impact and this kind of mission. So that was definitely a strong point for us, as much as the kind of the technology and the um, 
kind of uh, profitability, there was also the mission element, which helped us quite a bit. Um, same with Cambridge as well. They were very supportive on, on that side of things. And then, of course, we had um, the Clean Growth Fund, which is a UK-backed or government-backed kind of VC firm focused on clean technology. So they were kind of, if we could have gone into the process and picked who we would have wanted as investors, those are exactly the ones we would have kind of chosen in the end. So to end up there at the end is very nice, but we did have kind of difficult conversations along the way. And um, it's important to kind of be um, be persistent and be kind of, you know, maintain your self-belief while having those conversations because it can get quite tough as well. So just, just for the people listening, can you give us some sort of idea as to how long that all took, how much effort was involved, <laughs> and how do you fit that around having a, another full-time role as well? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So however long you think it's going to take, it takes longer, and however much energy <laughs> you think it's going to take, it takes more than that. Um, so I think it's kind of... Um, it's it's very much in support of the research that I've been developing and it's kind of part of it as well. And I felt like as as an academic and a researcher, you had to take on that challenge of it's not enough to publish papers and it's not enough to kind of tell people that these things are good. You have to go out into the world and show that and kind of you know do the development side of R&D as well. So um, in terms of kind of managing it around, you know, um, a full time kind of role as a, as a researcher and academic as well. I think most academics work very long hours as it is. So there's always kind of flex in, in that kind of space as well. But I think um, the energy and the kind of motivation around it, it kind of has to kind of really come from you. And I think anybody who wants to kind of go into being an entrepreneur has to be, has to kind of have that drive to want to make this happen bad enough that they will kind of persevere under those circumstances. So while we didn't have, you know, again, according to our, our advisors and our VC investors, we didn't have a bad experience of doing it relative to what some people have had. It is definitely a tough process to go through. And, um, you know, it is important to um, keep kind of your self-belief, but also to really realize that, you know, investors also want to kind of feel engaged by the idea and want to feel kind of part of it as well. So it's not as much selling people as it is kind of also getting them wanting to be a part of something. Great. Uh, we can see and we've heard very clearly about the unique and special skills that you bring to Carbon uh, Re. But you also mentioned it's part of a team and you mentioned another colleague at Cambridge. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the team um, and what each person brings and how it all fits together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess I've been lucky to be a researcher at some really high level institutes and um, to have a, a kind of long career building a research group and recruiting people and you know, working on you know really big research projects. And I think uh, even in kind of technical um, kind of fields, then the best skill of all is to be easy to work with. And I think we've really kind of been incredibly lucky to find people who really bring that to bear while also having you know, fantastic technical skills. So um, Dan very much brings the kind of the manufacturing and kind of um, expertise around industrial processes. Um, and you know, now the company is at such a scale that we're building out a team of people who have worked in industry as process engineers. And we've had that kind of domain expertise built in from the start. And I think that can often be one of the things that AI companies get wrong is that they say, well, our technology is so good, you just need to give us our data and then we'll solve all the problems ourselves without really understanding it. So I think we've seen that in some of the feedback from the industry is that what's different about us is we're very much uh, domain first 
and then tools to support that around it. So the team of machine learning people that we've recruited um, have been you know, really top class and we've been lucky to recruit them from uh, UCL as well. So uh, lots of grads <laughs> from the computer science masters, uh, which is one of the best in the UK for sure, uh, as well as PhD grads from uh, Trinity College in Dublin and uh, Oxford University as well. And it's been really fantastic to be able to kind of see them want to shift into a, a role that gives them the opportunity to have impact uh, but it's also incredibly challenging as well and you know they're really inspiring to work with great um if you were speaking to a, another ucl academic or, or maybe just a, a colleague or a, a friend somewhere who who has a vision for a business they want to start uh, that's perhaps going to make a, a positive environment environmental impact change and make the world a better place what what advice would you give them based on your experience what what should they be looking out for and what should they focus on yeah i think Again, one of the things that really helped us when talking to investors was we built something. Um, you know, it might not have been the perfect product, it might not have been the final product, but we had something to show people and we had an idea of, of how it would all fit together. And I think that's important um, as a kind of a first step. And it also kind of uh, filters out a little bit whether you really want to do this. And if you're kind of prepared to to go off and spend the time to build a rough prototype to, to put in front of people, um, then, you know, that's a very good first step. And it also convinces people that it is it is valuable what you want to do. I think in terms of advice, I would definitely say like talking to people with experiences is really valuable. Reaching out to the innovation and, uh, and entrepreneurship angle of UCL, I found really helpful uh, in terms of understanding what can be done and what can be achieved. And the support there is really top class. I think there's been some kind of there's been some uh, stories around how much equity universities take out of startups and kind of controversies around that. And I found that um, UCL has a very progressive policy relative to other uh, universities that I've seen. So uh, I think when I was at MIT, it was something quite draconian in terms of uh, equity share with the university. So that has been something that traditionally some academics have been a bit um, afraid by or put off by. But I would say, you know, it seems to be moving in the right direction. I think there's a lot of either, you know, the equity kind of share that you may give away is, you know, very valuable. You know, what you get in return is it grossly outweighs that. It's far better to have kind of, you know, 10% of something that's worth, you know, a significant amount of money and, you know, making a big impact in the world than kind of have 100% of something that's you know, worth zero money and uh, just you and your kind of shared kind of idea as well. So I would say talking to people in the business kind of side of things to get a sense of what support can be provided is really, really critical and really opens a lot of doors for us as well. <laughs> yeah, maybe um, it might be quite useful just to comment how easy you, or difficult you found it to actually set up the business and bring it outside of the two universities that are involved. And I know you had um, some investment from UCL's technology fund, um, which was used to get the, the business up and running in, in the first place, along with some other investors. Um, what, what was your experience of that process? Uh, and how do you think it worked for Carbon Marie? Uh, again, my experience was was really positive on that. Um, again, I thought the UCL Tech Fund was very, um, very understanding of kind of what it could and couldn't kind of see at certain stages. And you know, understanding where a company should be at certain times is really important. Again, if you talk to an investor who's saying, you know, where is your revenue at kind of pre-seed stage, then, you know, they obviously don't know what they're doing. Whereas UCL Tech Fund was really knowledgeable and, and really understood, you know, 
what the kind of potential was for this technology and that we would need support in certain areas and kind of uh, uh, adapted to putting that out. So uh, from my experiences, it's been really positive. Again, also working with Cambridge Enterprise, um, they've been very supportive in terms of what we want to achieve and um, been really kind of engaged in the process and kind of there's been some back and forth, of course, uh, as in kind of any negotiation, but uh, mm-hmm. at all stages, the kind of the the will to see the company succeed has been very evident and that's really helped a lot in terms of like trusting people and um because again it is a very unknown space um you know we're first time founders all of us um and also the change from academia to entrepreneurship demands a lot of different skills and a lot of different knowledge and a lot of different expertise that you know you don't get running a research project um so having that kind of guidance and having that kind of trusted kind of advice is is really important and kind of knowing where people stand and knowing that they do want to see this succeed is really really helpful so uh aiden one of the things that people obviously uh often see as being quite complicated is about the process of taking a new business out of a university so i know you've interacted with uclb uh, to formalize that's the mechanics of taking the technology outside of the university and putting it into a commercial context. And then you also worked with the UCL Technology Fund uh, to be able to get the investment required to get the business up and running. Can you tell us a little bit about how that process worked? Was it smooth? Was it clunky? Was it difficult? Did it take you years? What was it like for you and for Carbon Re? Yeah, uh, very happy to to speak about that. And I think it's it's something that I think there's been a lot more emphasis placed uh, on universities in terms of innovation over the last few years. You know, I've been in uh, academia for about uh, seven or eight years now, and it's kind of it's quite obvious to me that there is a renewed emphasis on innovation, and it's something that's being flagged up in different um, you know scores and kind of uh, rankings. How well universities are doing at kind of getting startups out. So there is incentive for universities to you know engage in this activity, and I found that um, you know what has been put in place with UCLB and you know in UCL has been a really effective process for us uh, and very quick and rapid. And I think that that is something that again. The academic administration is a very, you know, particular process and has a very, um, you know, reputation for being quite slow. Whereas, uh, having an innovation and uh, entrepreneurship uh, sector and UCL business as almost a kind of a company or a university within a university and kind of a separate entity is really fantastic in terms of the reactivity and the uh, kind of speed of uh, reply and engagement that you get when you kind of come to them with an idea. So that was really fantastic from us. Uh, learning about that process again first time founders so having kind of trusted advice and people who you know have seen a lot of these uh, processes being carried out and have kind of done this you know it's their full-time job to do these things so really helps us as kind of people who are doing it for the first time and really smooth the process of uh, setting up and spinning out a company um, work really well so UCL business outside were really fantastic I think UCL tech fund was really like it's a really fantastic endeavor that the university has set this up and that it really brings in um, very professional VCs and you know the Albion Capital are kind of working hand in hand with UCL Tech Fund and managing it. And it really gives a sense of, you know, a ambition in terms of university making a big commitment to innovation um, by having this UCL Tech Fund, uh, which not many universities do. Um, but also it brings a real, it gives you almost a uh, preparatory kind of track for talking to other VCs. So again, these conversations are happening within the realms of 
someone who's used to talking to UCL or to kind of university spin-ups. So they expect certain things and they know what not to kind of what won't be there at certain stages as well. But they also come with a certain um, understanding of you know what research at UCL is like. So there's not quite the kind of challenges you get from you know VCs that are quite external. Like again, a Canadian VC we might have spoken to, um, you know, presented lots of challenges in terms of understanding you know, the level of research and what was required, what needed to happen versus why wasn't this just a business that could be spun up overnight and you know, deployed immediately. So I think in terms of doing things like deep tech and, and big research and you know, really getting into really solving really challenging problems, um, the university kind of support around that and innovation has been fantastic for us and a really smooth process that helped kind of first time founders, you know, develop a company and not lose too much time and uh, dealing with some of that that kind of uh, infrastructure work and allowing us to concentrate on innovation and kind of building a business there's one area where there's quite often a lot of discussion about and um not always well-informed discussion and that's about the the transition of technology know-how from inside the university into a, a company where it can be um exploited uh commercially to create value now some people see that as a really complicated slow difficult process and at UCL, you used the Portico Ventures route to be able to do that. Um, what was your experience of that? How, how did it work and how straightforward was it for Carbonari to get what it needed to be into the, the successful business it is today? Yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes those processes can feel like they're um, they're developed for an invention. So somebody develops a new uh, widget or you know um, a new type of chemical, and that's what's then licensed to a company to make. In our case, with technology like artificial intelligence and machine learning, it's far more abstract in terms of what you're actually kind of uh, what is IP and what isn't IP. So for us, it was very um, we found the process very flexible because it adapted to what we had, which was a very case of we can't tell you what exactly the innovation is. Uh, we can't say exactly what this is, but it's very much the application in the space of this expertise. So um, we found that the process adapted to what we needed it to be, um, which was really helpful. And we didn't lose you know, a significant amount of time trying to define you know, certain things in, in the right legal framework. It was very loose and very kind of uh, general, allowing us to make progress and allowing us to go off and uh, go forward and build the business up again. But um, in terms of kind of like defining a technology innovation, in this space, you know, innovation happens so quickly that, you know, within six months, what we had would have said then would be kind of out of date. And the new thing that's even better is what we've developed and keep going. So I think kind of there being a lot of uh, practicality and pragmatism from UCLB really helped with that. Excellent. Good to understand that. Thank you very much. So just catching or picking up on one of the things you said there, do, do you feel this has been part of a personal development journey for you do you feel you've learned things out of it was it positive or do you look back and think oh i wish i'd never done that <laughs> um yeah i guess a personal baptism of fire i guess in a way i think um yeah i mean doing hard things is hard um you know it's kind of <laughs> you know it's going to be yep. the case um but i think it's definitely been worthwhile and i think it's also in some sense it's kind of validating um as a researcher i think there's often this kind of criticism of maybe ivory tower kind of kind of academic or these things look great on paper but do they actually have an impact so to kind of take technology out into the world and to really deploy it 
um, it's it's a real big part. I think as an academic, you often have to be an advocate for your field. Um, you have to want to convince undergrads that they should kind of dedicate the next four years of their life to studying mechanical engineering or studying statistics or studying machine learning. Um, and, you know, in some sense, this is kind of validating for a lot of the kind of research and a lot of directions that we've been trying to do of, you know, this can have a major impact in the world as something that we tell students as well. So in some sense, I felt like there was almost an obligation to, to do it, to kind of actually kind of mm-hmm. prove you know, put your money where your mouth is a little bit and kind of, you know, actually go out and see if you can deploy these things in anger. Um, and in terms of my kind of personal journey, it's been a really, really positive experience and really kind of um, challenging at times, you know, talking to a client and, you know, trying to convince them that they should uh, use your software. And they say, well, actually, we're not really that interested. And you go on to the next client to try and learn from that and try and improve and try and think about what you can do better on the pitching side of things. And having those kind of discussions isn't something you get into in academia. It's very much write a grant and do the research and publish. Whereas this is kind of very day to day. What are the problems? Uh, how do you kind of solve these uh, as you're trying to build, you know, uh, building the airplane while you're kind of flying it is kind of um, the best analogy I've come across. Okay, that's really great. I I think it's fantastic to see how uh, cutting edge technology at a university is having a real impact, uh, especially with the climate emergency and producing win-win solutions for both industry and the environment. I think that makes Carbonry a really interesting business. It, we, we haven't got loads of time to go, keep going through and learning more about it. But if people do want to find out a little bit more about you, about what you're doing, what the company's about, how, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, as a, as a first step, please do kind of check out our website and, and drop us a message. Um, also, things like Twitter and um, social media, we're, we're on some of those as well, LinkedIn, I think. Um, we have given talks um, at different places. So again, uh, I'm quite involved in the UNESCO International Research Centre on AI, and I've presented some of uh, Carbon Re's work there as well. So there are some talks on YouTube about what we do as well. Um, we are trying to be quite active in the space again. We do want to fly the flag for what people can do and inspire more companies to do the same thing. It's not that we want to be the only company in the world uh, using AI for climate change or climate tech. We definitely want to kind of show that this is kind of something that can have an impact and this is kind of sustainable as a company as well. So hopefully people uh, can see enough in those resources to um, feel the confidence to take on whatever projects they might have in mind or whatever they might kind of be inspired to do as well. So um, I hope we've managed to show over the uh, short discussion how uh, an environmentally focused uh, startup business uh, coming out of a university with cutting edge technologies really can make a difference to a heavy industry um, like the cement industry and beyond. Um, I think I'd like to take the, a minute or so just to thank you, Aidan, for coming along and telling us all about uh, Carbon Re. I mean, what an exciting and interesting uh, business. Um, I guess the next step for me is really to say uh, the next episode, episode three, is also another opportunity to see how cutting edge research is changing the world, but in a slightly different and maybe a more personal way, where we have Dr. Richard Fagan, who's the UCL Director of Biofarm, and Professor Charles Swanton, uh, co-founder of Achilles, where they're going to be talking about beating cancer. So that's in the, the next episode. Thank you very much, Aidan. Is there any last words you want to say about Carbon Re? Uh, watch this space, I guess, and uh, let's see where we can get to in, in the next year. But uh, yeah, thank you very much. It's been fantastic to uh, chat to you. Thank you very much.